chased by Cyrus from Babylon, and they are now back in their homeland. We've talked about all that. We looked at all the names a couple of weeks ago and about the faithfulness of God. And this whole story throughout Jeremiah and Ezra has taught us about the sovereignty and faithfulness of God. Today I want to examine what happened when the people came back upon their return, what was the first thing they did, and what that priority shows us. And there's a very encouraging, I hope, message for us in this. In Ezra chapter 3, which we've already read, it says right away in the first verse that it was the seventh month when they came back. Now, I don't believe this means that they had been back for seven months and now they're going to share what's happening. I think this means that they had been back even maybe just for a few weeks or a short time and it was the seventh month. Because in Ezra chapter 3 verse 8, it tells us that in the second year after their coming. So we realize that this is the first year upon their return. They have just made it back. It's within at least the first 12 months of their being back. What is, it that they prior- what is it that they prioritize? What is most important for them? It's worship. They build an altar and they start celebrating uh, some of the, the uh, thank you, the, um, the festivals that they had not been able to celebrate for a couple of generations. They were led by two guys that are listed there for us, Joshua, who is the head of the priests, and then Zerubbabel, who is just as important as Ezra and Nehemiah, but he doesn't have a book named after him in the Bible, so he's kind of lost. He's the grandson of Jehoiachin, one of those four ungodly kings. He's also known as Jeconiah or Coniah. This is the guy that was cursed, and so the line of Christ had to be uh, come through Mary as well so that Jesus could reign as king. So Zerubbabel is in line to be the king, which is why he's given this position of leadership, even though he's not the king. In verse 1, it says, They gathered together in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem as one man. They are in unity, gathering together to worship God. They built the altar, put it, according to verse 3, in its place, and started offering burnt offerings. Why did they do this? I think we can assume two reasons from the passage. The first is they're doing it out of faith, because, interesting, that says the altar was put in its place place, as if there's a specific place for it, and it says a couple of times in the passage, they did it as it was written. So here they are obeying the commands of God as written in the law of Moses, and they're carrying out these acts of worship by faith. But the scripture also tells us in verse 3 that they're also motivated by fear. They are afraid because, verse 3 says, there are some people in the land. Obviously, when they were all gone, Some people filled in the gaps, and they're not as happy to see these Jewish people back in their land. And maybe they're threatening and intimidating. In fact, when all of these people went up to Jerusalem, they left their homes and places of business, if they had established those within the first year, that that could come under... Uh, looting or attack or, by these people who have left behind, but they, they were seeking safety and security in God. Obviously, one of the first things that these people who are coming back from Babylon would want would be safety and security. They've been gone for 70 years. We don't want what has happened to happen to us again. We want to dwell safely in our land. And they could have done this by appointing an army. They could have done this by uh, gathering lots of numbers But they have learned, in a sense, at least first, their lesson that God is the source of safety and security. Relying on ourselves or others will bring failure. And they've spent 70 years learning that lesson under the discipline of God in Babylon. 
Listen to these two verses. And perhaps these are words of Jeremiah that they even remembered. From Jeremiah 17.5. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. And then Psalm 118, verse 8. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Here's an application for us right away. Who is it that can protect us, that can guarantee our safety and security, and can ensure our well-being in life? The answer, of course, is there is only one who can do that. It's God. God is the solution to every problem that we have. And seeking a human solution, especially to solve a spiritual problem, is to invite disaster into your life. We would say we believe that God is the only one who can ensure our well-being. Everybody say amen. God is the only one who can ensure our well-being. We would say we believe that. <clears throat> if that is true, why are we constantly looking to other solutions? Whether we feel danger, intimidation, or there's some sort of spiritual issue, the answer is to give ourselves to God and worship. I don't mean just to come to church, but I mean that the center and priority, just like the priority of these people coming back, was worship. That must be the priority of your life. If it's not, then you are saying that other solutions are more helpful. You have to give up on other solutions and recognize the power of Jeremiah 17. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. This always leads to a turning away from the Lord. We shouldn't be surprised if we don't live that life ourselves that we find ourselves drifting from the Lord or if we don't instill it in our families. The priority for all of us must be to worship God, to seek Him alone. So the exiles build this altar and what is it then by God's sovereignty that they start to celebrate? Let's look at it. Verse number three. They set the altar in its place excuse me, for fear of them, was on them because of the people of the lands. They offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Verse 4. And they kept the feast of booths as it is written. Now, I want to do the whole chapter today, but I got stuck on the feast of booths. I've never preached a message on the feast of booths, and I debated a long time, you can talk to Lee about this, in doing that. But I think the significance of this feast, the timing of it, and the people celebrating it, has some significance to both our first thought that worship must be our priority, that God is the solution to everything, and it also has some pretty incredible applications for us. So let's, we're going to talk about the Feast of Booths. The seventh month, which verse 1 tells us they're in, was the most significant in the Jewish calendar. It's uh, the first day of the seventh month is the Jewish New Year. That doesn't make a lot of sense. How can the first... The first day of the seventh month be the Jewish New Year. It's very similar to like when we say the school year starts in August or our fiscal year starts in October. They have a civil calendar and a biblical calendar. The seventh month in the Jewish calendar would be September or October for us. It's the month of Tishri. The first day was the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. The tenth day was the Day of Atonement. And the fifteenth day was the Feast of Booths. So this is a very special month. And God in his sovereignty is having them celebrate the Feast of Booths on the 15th month, 15th day of the month. It's, it's also called the Feast of Tabernacles, but it was one of the most special festivals that it almost, in, in Jewish history, it became simply known as the holiday or the feast. But we read it Feast of uh, Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. And there's a twofold aspect to the celebration. 
Now, if you weren't listening up to this point, this is important. Twofold aspect to the, to the celebration. Number one, joyful memories. And number two, hopeful dreams. So that's the title of the message today. Joyful memories, hopeful dreams. The first part of the Feast of Booze was joyful memories. It's just an overview real quick. In other words, they were commemorating something. The festival was meant to commemorate something. That's like a lot of our holidays. It was meant to commemorate what God has done. The hopeful dream part has a prophetic aspect. What God will do. You follow that so far? So the Feast of Booze, hope, uh, joyful memories, celebrating what God has done, hopeful dreams, looking forward to what God might do. That was all part of this seven-day-long celebration. Okay? So here's the outline for today. Number one, we're going to have an explanation of the feast. Then second, an examination of its meaning. And then third, and very short at the end, an evaluation of our hearts. Excellent explanation of the feast, examination of the meaning of it, evaluation of our hearts. I'm going to take a drink. Ready to go. <clears throat> Number one, let's explain the feast. Turn to Leviticus chapter 23. I know a lot of you would claim Leviticus is your favorite book in the Bible. Uh, it's a tough book. It's usually where our read the Bible through in a year uh, desires go to die. It gets very hard and difficult. But there's an important thing here for us. In verse 33, here is where the Lord initiates this feast. So let's read about it. <coughs> and then I'll make some summary statements about it. Verse 33. Everybody there? Leviticus 23, 33. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel. On the 15th day of this seventh month and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. Your Bible may say Feast of Tabernacles. Same thing. On the first day... Seven-day-long celebration. On the first day, it shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days, you will present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day, you will hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation. For presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings each on its proper day. Besides the Lord's Sabbath, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. We even read about that in Ezra. On the 15th day, verse 39, of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day there shall be a solemn rest, on the eighth day a solemn rest. You will take on the first day the fruit of the splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you will rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You will celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So that's the explanation of it. Let me just make a few bullet points about it, just to summarize. All adult males were required to travel to Jerusalem. Uh, it was a joyful holiday of celebration. 
Uh, it was also known as the Feast of Ingathering. We read that there. It was right after the harvest, September, October. Right after the harvest. They would celebrate all that God had done. Again, it was meant to look back and commemorate joyful memories. What is the specific memory that they are supposed to commemorate? The specific memory, it tells us at the end of the passage, right? It's okay if you're afraid to say. That we dwelt in booths in the wilderness and God delivered us. Remember that? Let's remember that. And then let's look forward to when his presence might dwell with us again. That's the prophetic part. Here's how it was observed. On the, first, on the 15th day, it was a solemn rest. The day after the week was over, you had another solemn rest. Numbers chapter 29, we won't read it, but if you want to look there later, that tells you all the sacrifices that had to be offered during that week. And one of the places, if you're still in Leviticus, it tells you uh, in verse number 37, if you look at the end of verse number 37, it says there's all these offerings, each on its proper day. It'd be very interesting if we had time to read the Numbers passage, Numbers 29, 12 to 39. It outlines, on the first day you will do this, you'll offer this. On the second day you will offer this. So the Feast of Booze, it was like a little, very specific calendar. You, on the first day you celebrate, second day you do these sacrifices, and if you count up all the sacrifices listed in Numbers chapter 29, there's about 220 animals that are killed during that week in celebration. In Ezra chapter 3 verse 4, we read that earlier, I'll just... Read it once more, one more time. It says, They kept the Feast of Booze as was written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. So they were thinking back to what Numbers said and they were doing exactly what was said. Three requirements of the celebration. You built a temporary shelter or booth and you lived in it during that week. You gathered four types of tree branches and you waved them at specific times during the celebration. And the only other requirement besides that was you had to rejoice all seven days. It sounds like a fun celebration. You can understand why the people just called it the holiday. The booth. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but historians have told us that the booth had to be four feet wide by four feet long, at least. So it had to be four by four square. You could build it bigger if you wanted, but you could not build it higher than 30 feet. I thought that was interesting. Can you imagine a 30-foot booth? I don't know if this was something they put in the shed all year and got it back out again or used trees or whatever they used. They, they had to keep the top covered with leaves and branches, but not so much that they could not see through it at night to see the stars. They could decorate it very attractively, and in order to dwell in it, they had to spend more time in their booth than they did in their home. They were encouraged to eat their meals in the booth. They were required to eat the first meal in it. Can you imagine for kids? It'd be like camping out. That's really what the celebration is. Waving branches, living in a booth. Sounds fun. Killing 220 animals throughout the week as well. That maybe doesn't sound as exciting. They collected branches of palm trees, willow trees, and others, and bound them and waved them in celebration while marching and singing from Psalm 118, verse 25, which says, Save now, we pray, O Lord. That'll be important in a minute. There was a man-made addition to the feast that's very important. It's not mentioned in Scripture, but this is a very important aspect that the Jews celebrated, probably even in Ezra when they celebrated. There's a few places in the Bible where it tells us they celebrated the Feast of Booze, but even though this isn't a scriptural requirement, it's something that developed over time and it is important. 
Every day of the seven days, the, the night before, the priests would go to a spring of running water and gather some in a jug. They would take that water the next day and walk up the ramp by the bronze altar and pour the jug of water into a bowl that would drain then into the altar. This water was drawn from a specific spring called the Spring of Gihon. This spring was where Solomon was anointed in 1 Kings 1.45. Someone has said about the gathering of the water by the priests in Jewish historical uh, literature that if you never witnessed the joy of gathering that water, then you've never witnessed joy in your life. I wrote down some of the things. It was drawn the night before. There was music and dancing and torches, candlesticks that were 75 feet high. Little boys climbed ladders, apparently, to light these candles. And when the water was drawn out of the spring, three blasts on a shofar were sounded. I mean, can you imagine this? This is very important for the end, but just imagine this picture. The priest going down, just a total celebration. Hezekiah, when he was king, redirected this spring into something called his conduit or his tunnel, which then flowed this water directly into Jerusalem into the pool of Siloam. That's familiar to you probably. The water of that pool is very significant. In Numbers chapter 19, Moses was giving, given a command by God to take the ashes of a red heifer and mix it with, quote, running waters. It doesn't say the pool of Shalom or the spring of Gehan, but when this was carried on by the priests, it is said that they took that water from this spring. This water was then very symbolic of cleansing. In fact, you know the pool of Shalom from the Gospels in John 9 when Jesus heals the man who is blind from birth and he commands him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. So the waters of that pool, of that spring, of the priests gathering up and pouring it in the basin had historical and prophetical significance. Isaiah 44 verse 3 says this, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. That water became symbolic of the presence of the spirit. The priests, when they poured the altar on it, Again, joyful memories, hopeful dreams. The idea is that one day he will dwell with us, the Messiah will dwell with us and his glory will be present with us and his spirit will be poured out upon us. This is all symbolic. That's why the joy, God, do that, bring that. Right? You can imagine the celebration. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. You will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song and has become my salvation. Listen to this. So you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Just an incredible symbolism here. So you can imagine this is what's going on. They're living in these shelters. They're waving these branches. They're drawing this water which is symbolic of the Holy Spirit which we've poured out on the days when Messiah comes. That's an explanation of the feast. That's what happened. Joyful memories commemorating what God had done. Hopeful dreams about what God might do. For those exiles, it would be, hey, we're thankful even for what God has just done returning us from Babylon 
maybe even weeks ago, and we're hopeful that the Messiah will come and rescue us. Okay? Now, let's go on to number two. Let's examine the meaning of this. We began by noting at the beginning that the Jews in worshiping God were recognizing that he was the only source of safety and security. So what in the worship and celebration did the Feast of Booths demonstrate? What is it that they were seeking? Let me make this summary statement and then we'll go back and talk about it for a minute. Dwelling in the booths, okay, we're going to explain what this all means now. Dwelling in the booths reminded the Jews that their ancestors also dwelt in booths in the wilderness. It commemorated God's deliverance and declared they were dependent on God for all things. That's the explanation. That dwelling in the booths reminded the Jews and their ans- that their ancestors dwelt in the wilderness, commemorated God's deliverance, and declared they were dependent on God for all things. So there's three letter D words in this section that I want to kind of hang our thoughts on and walk through. So it's about dwelling, uh, delivering, and depending. Dwelling, delivering, and depending. So let's think about the two aspects of the, you know, the, the commemorating or the joyful memories and the hopeful dreams with each of those three words, shall we? And, and we'll, we'll be closing in on the end here. Let's talk about dwelling, the joyful memories side. Okay? As the Jews came to celebrate the Feast of Booths, dwelling in those tents or shelters, they're reminded of their own ancestors dwelling in those types of shelters. But even more so, the Feast of Booths is also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And then God also dwelt in the tabernacle in the wilderness. So what they are reminding themselves of, in a sense of, not only just of their ancestors dwelling in the wilderness, but God himself dwelling or tabernacling with them. His presence with them. Combined with that word dwell is the idea of his glory and his presence. So here's what they're commemorating. They're almost like they're celebrating back and thinking back to how their ancestors actually saw the Shekinah glory of God. In the very beginning, they saw it in the pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire leading them out of Egypt. Remember that? And then, abiding above the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle, they're, they're in their temporary shelters, God in His shelter, dwelling together. The presence of God. Joyful memory part commemorating that what about the prophetic part of the hopeful dream part regarding the dwelling what they're saying they're they're blowing their shofar they're lighting their candles they're celebrating waving their branches god will again dwell with us think about this that's what they're hopeful about that someday messiah will come and he will dwell with us his presence and his glory will be with us They're hopeful that that might happen. Think about these exiles in Ezra chapter 3 celebrating that immediately upon their return. Say, God, you dwelt with us before. We look forward to when you will dwell with us again. Got that part? Let's do the second thing. What about deliverance? The joyful memory part. If you got a little column, it'd be helpful. The joyful memory part. Here's what they're remembering. 
When they dwelt in those booths in the wilderness, they had come out of slavery in Egypt. So they're remembering that God had delivered them, their ancestors, from their slave masters, the Egyptians. And how did they do that? How did, how did God do that for them, I should say? He did it powerfully, miraculously, and finally He did it with the shed blood of an innocent lamb. That is how their ultimate deliverance happened. Through the Passover celebration. So they're commemorating that. They're blowing their horns and waving their branches saying this is wonderful what God has done for our ancestors. Hopeful dream part. Messiah will come and deliver us from our enemies. We are now enslaved by a cruel master, sin and death. And the blood of the perfect lamb will provide the ultimate deliverance. We're hopeful that that will happen. We're on the other side. We've already seen that happen. understand that. But this is what they are celebrating. Third, their dependence. They're joyfully remembering that their ancestors were dependent on God for food and water. Remember the pouring of water into the altar. They, they remember back to when God provided water and manna. Their shoes wouldn't wear out. All the, all the things God provided as they traveled through a foreign country on the way to the promised land. What do they look forward to prophetically in their hopeful dreams? Thinking as we continue to travel in a foreign world on our way to a promised land, we are dependent upon God for all things. During this troubled time that the exiles were living in, as they desired security and safety, they celebrated this special feast of booths commemorating God dwelling with them, His deliverance from Egypt, and declaring that they are dependent on Him for all things, moving into this new country. And they're looking ahead to God, and again, through the Messiah dwelling with us, ultimately delivering us, and then, again, continuing to declare our dependence. Now let me make this very important statement, and we'll glide into the end. Jesus Christ Himself, of course, is the fulfillment of all of these things. And in celebration of the Feast of Booths, without realizing it, they're really celebrating the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, you've probably already jumped ahead in your mind a little bit. You shouldn't have done that. That's my job. But let me turn to a couple New Testament passages. Turn to John chapter 1. Let's talk about each one. The dwelling part, the deliverance part, and the dependence part. The dwelling part. God's glory, of course, as I already mentioned, dwelt with the people as it resided in the tabernacle with the pilgrims wandering in the desert under Moses. Look at John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John is beginning his Gospel account by introducing who he believes to be the Messiah, the eternal begotten Son of God. Look at verse 14, when he continues about this Word. The Word became flesh. And everybody say the next word. Dwelt among us. 
And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The hopeful dreams that are prophetically looked ahead to and anticipated during the celebration of the Feast of Booths have become a reality, John says. He has come to dwell with us, to tabernacle with us and among us. John is making clear that Jesus Christ as the Messiah is, is the fulfillment of that celebration of the Feast of Booths. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it tells us that Jesus, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the presence of, to quote Isaiah, God with us. You don't have to turn there, but in Luke chapter 9, verse 27, in the story of the transfiguration, you remember this? They went up on the mountain, and Jesus transfigured himself and became and, and demonstrated his full glory to Peter, to Peter, James, and John. And remember what Peter said? Oh, it's so good for us to be here. We should build booths. We should build booths here. Because this is what we commemorate during that celebration. Let's live here in and amongst your glory. And a cloud comes down. I mean, all this, it's, it's very, it certainly alludes to the uh, Old Testament with the glory and the cloud and God's presence. And, and God speaks, says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. It's clear what the gospel writers are doing. That Jesus Christ, the Messiah, when he lived among the Jews, was God actually dwelling with his people. And now God still dwells with his people within us. Right? I love that part. I think it's John 17 when the disciples are freaking out that Jesus is leaving. He says, don't worry, I'm going to send another comforter. I've been with you. He'll be in you. And now the glory of God actually resides within each believer. How can he dwell any closer? Think about the Feast of Booths. Oh, we remember when God was in that tabernacle? We were in our booths and he was in his booth. <laughs> and now Jesus is on the earth and he's in one place. And we, I mean, we can be around him, but that's as close as we can get. Now he's within us. God wants to dwell with us. Of course, we look ahead to the time when we will dwell with him forever in heaven, but Jesus is the fulfillment of that celebration of the dwelling. What about delivering? Turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Most of what I said already is meant to lead us to this passage. I told you that there were times in the Bible where uh, the Jews celebrated the Feast of Booths, and uh, here's the place where it tells us how Jesus celebrated it. We're going to stay here for a minute. <clears throat> As the people uh, commemorated the Exodus, they also anticipated Messiah's coming deliverance. But you know that sadly they misinterpreted it. Remember at the triumphal entry, what were the people waving? Palm branches. You know what they were doing? They were there to celebrate the Passover, of course, but they were like, oh man, this is more like a Feast of Booths moment. So they grabbed the palm branches and start waving them. And what do they start saying? Save now, we pray. Hosanna, blessed be the Son of God. Same thing they cried out during the Feast of Booths celebration. You know what they're thinking? Messiah is here and he's come to deliver us. They were right, but they were wrong. He wasn't come to deliver them from Romans or political oppression. He was coming to deliver from their sins. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you up under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chickens, but you didn't want to have anything to do with me. They rejected Messiah's ministry because they misunderstood it. They missed the deliverance. And maybe 
They didn't miss it in any other place worse than they missed it in John chapter 7 during the very celebration of the Feast of Booze. Let's read a little bit of it. I hope it just pops from the page. Verse number 1. We're going to read quite a bit of it. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers, his actual half-brothers, said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Here's what his brothers thought. This would be a good time for you to show everybody who you are. Go to the Feast of Booths and do something miraculous. Because if you want your ministry to be open and well-known, stop being out here in Galilee in secret. Go to where every adult male is gathering for this celebration and show us something. Logically, it seemed to make sense, right? But these, it, was, it was set out of a heart of unbelief and Jesus says, my time has not yet come. Basically, I'm not going to do that. Verse number 8, you go up to the feast... I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. It's not that Jesus was lying or changed his mind. He is going to go to the feast, but he means he's not going to go in the way that they suggest. Verse 10, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast. Where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people, while others said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Here we keep going, 14. The middle of the feast, midweek of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. It would be packed, right? Everybody's there. People outside in their booths. And he starts teaching. And they're marveling at his teaching. We're not going to read all of this, but he says he's never studied. And Jesus says, I'm here to do God's will. Verse 20, their response to that, you have a demon. Jesus says, you're not responding, etc. The whole point isn't to read this. Um, Verse number 25, some of the people said, is not this the man they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him? Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? There's a lot of questioning going on here. Okay. Um, Verse number 32, Pharisees heard all this, heard this controversy in the midst of the a celebration. They muttered things, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. We've got to stop this now. The feast must go on. Jesus said, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. Of course, he's talking about his death and resurrection and ascension. Um, verse 37. Here we go. On the last day of the feast, the great day. On the last day of the feast, the priests would not, uh, when they got the water, they would actually walk around the altar seven times before ascending the ramp and pouring the water in. I mean, this, remember I said, if you haven't seen joy, the joy of the, the water gathering, that's what the Jews said, you really haven't seen joy. This is huge celebration. In the middle of that moment, Jesus stood up and cried out. Okay, This is a major moment. And Jesus isn't hiding in a corner but he's, he wants people to believe not because of his works, but because of his word. He doesn't want people to believe in uh, miracles for their sake. He wants them to believe in the truth of who he is. And he stands up and cries out. Now understand what's happening. 
This may be at the very moment that the water is being carried and even poured. And Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this he said about the Spirit. Exactly the symbolism of the water being poured. I explained that to you. Whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit had not yet been given. Because Jesus had not yet been glorified. It continues. They keep asking questions about him. The officers that were sent to arrest him don't arrest him because they believe him. Nicodemus is actually here in verse 50. There's a lot of confusion and questions. But Jesus has made this announcement. And isn't it clear what's happening? You've been pouring water on that altar for hundreds of years. Hoping that the Messiah would come and the Spirit would be poured out. And he stands up and says... That water, that living water that you pour out of that tunnel, and it seems so great, that's just a symbol. Here's the real thing. If you drink, symbolically for me, rivers, rivers of living water will pour out of you to eternal life. Accept and drink. Just like he told the woman at the well. Anybody who drinks of this water will never thirst again. And all these people are in confusion or rejection. They want to arrest him and kill him. They misunderstand. They've been celebrating this feast for years. And they missed the point. The Lord is inviting the hearers to drink this life-giving, cleansing water. And we understand this, that only those who receive Christ receive life. What a way for Jesus to announce this. And sad that people reject. And yet, for week after week after week after week, I and other pastors present the gospel as urgently and passionately as they can, and people just sit stone cold to the truth of the gospel. And Christ alone is the solution to our spiritual problem. Would you repent of your sins before the Lord and find the cleansing and forgiveness? You must recognize your personal guilt that you deserve punishment and nothing that you can do can avert God's judgment. You must rely on Christ alone as the sacrifice for your sins. He is the only Savior and Lord. Christians believe that and have accepted that, but for some reason, even after we embrace Christ as the only solution for our spiritual problem of salvation, when other spiritual problems enter into our lives, we don't believe that Christ is the solution for those. We need worldly solutions to help our depression or loneliness or rebellion or whatever it is. Christ is the solution to all those things. But primarily, Christ alone can save. Remember the principle from Jeremiah, cursed is the man who trusts in man. Christ is here celebrating the Feast of Booths and he's also announcing that he is the fulfillment of it. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That's just, I, what a thing to see. Now, last thing is dependence. And of course, Romans tells us that if God did not spare his own son, why, how will he not also freely give us all things? The exiles, barely having time to build their homes, were already worshiping and declaring dependence on God in Ezra. For us, it's hard to be dependent on God. This is why we've said in the midst of uh, some of the stuff that's going on in the world and people are saying, well, Christ has got to come soon. And we always, I always say, well, why? You know, Christians around the globe have struggled with these sorts of things 
Throughout history, and only in American Christianity has it been kind of easy to be a believer. In our affluent, long life expectancy culture here in the Western world, it's difficult for us to admit that we're dependent on God for every single breath and everything we need. But we must realize that all other securities and solutions are illusions. It's like the fog or mist that goes away. Let's talk thirdly about an evaluation of our heart. I think the application is pretty straightforward. In times of trial and tension, are we turning to Christ or others? Have you turned to Christ personally for salvation? What is your priority? The exiles who came back from Babylon, their priority was worship. They desired God's presence. They sought his deliverance. And they declared his dependence. Say that one more time. Because this is the application for us. This must be our priority. To de- desire God's presence. We know he's ever presence with us. But, a, but in a sense, a real sense of his presence with us. A, a walking with him. A fellowship with him. We desire that. That's a priority. We seek his deliverance. Not only for our own salvation, but for every problem we have. And we say to him daily, we declare our dependence on him. What would people who are closest to you say is your priority? This or something else, right? This or work, or this or sports, or this or achievements, or whatever it is. Finally, let me have you turn to one more passage in Zechariah chapter 14. That's at the end of the Old Testament. Finish right here. Zechariah chapter 14. The day of the Lord, when it comes and the millennium millennium is set up, it tells us one more time about the Feast of Booths. There will be a celebration. Zechariah chapter 14. It says in verse 13, on, the day, on this day of the day of the Lord, a great panic from the Lord will fall on them. Each one will seize the hand of another and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected. Gold, silver, and garments of great abundance. And a plague will come on these people. Verse 16, everyone who survives this, of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem, shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. Some people think this is, this is literal, that, that in the Millennial Kingdom we'll still keep the Feast of Booths. I don't know. Some people think it's figurative. Whether it's real or symbolic, here's what's going to happen in that age for us. We will think about our joyful memories, commemorating all that Christ has done. Right? This is the whole point of the sermon. Joyful memories. Oh, Christ has delivered us. We're only here because of what he has done. But what about the hopeful dreams part? In that day of the Lord, will there be any aspect of the Feast of Booze that's going to contain the hopeful dreams? All the dreams have been realized through Christ. Everything has come true. So it will only be that part of joyfully remembering all that has been done for us. And all of this, of course, comes only through our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, how I urge you. I don't know how to say it any more passionately than to just urge you to turn to Christ if you have not. What would you be waiting for? To embrace Him and welcome Him. Repent of your sins. And if you are having other spiritual problems that you are seeking the solution for in Christ, Apart from Christ, stop doing that. Stop doing that. Stop seeking for help and advice from the world for a spiritual problem. 
and be like the exiles who prioritize the seeking of God's presence, the, the celebrating of his deliverance, and the declaring of our dependence upon him. Good stuff. Let's pray about it, all right? Our Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of so many things in the Bible. And to think about this celebration, which I've never really given much thought to, has been an encouragement. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who has quenched, those of us who are believers, has quenched our spiritual thirst. Has, has really made it, as it were, that springs of living water are bubbling up within us unto everlasting life. That we have the guarantee of eternal life. If there are those today who are still apart from Christ, would you please call them to yourselves today? Cause them to be broken, repentant. Father, I would also pray that your Spirit would convict anyone who's dealing with a spiritual problem in a worldly way to stop that and prioritize instead worship that each of, you, each of us would seek you above all else. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's sing.